Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Good evening, guys. It's nice to be able to speak to you tonight. I'll try and be, try and be brief. Um, we're doing a. We're starting tonight a series in the evenings, looking at the subject of justice. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at different aspects of that theme. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the subject of servanthood, which seems um, appropriate after what Mark's just said and what we've celebrated this this weekend. But um, before we do that, or as part of that, I'd like us to watch a little video clip. It's only very brief, uh, but hopefully it'll bring back some happy memories of a TV series that was shown Earlier this, uh, earlier this year. So, thank you, Polly. People sometimes think I'm overconfident. I am perfect, glamorous, as well as credible. I'm not scared of anything. I'm the the Apprentice on BBC One and BBC One HD. Brilliant. Who likes The Apprentice? Few, a few, a subdued murmur of acceptance of The Apprentice. Maybe more, I don't know. I love The Apprentice. I, I love it and I loathe it in equal measure. One of the things I love and loathe about The Apprentice is um, when you get those little clips of the candidates bigging themselves up in the most obscene way, just coming out with the most ridiculous phrases. Someone, one of the clips I thought about showing, someone said, uh, my personal life, my social life means nothing to me, only my work life. Wow, really? And then someone else was saying something like, I am the, I am the, uh, what is it? I am the new caped crusader in Apprentice City. What does that even mean? It was like unbelievable. I said, "What?" Is but they come out with these dreadful things where they just big themselves up, and you're just watching. You're just cringing because you know that at some point in a few weeks' time, something fun will happen. And one of these people who has most bigged themselves up, or probably, hopefully, a number of them. You know, it's going to be a little bit cringy and a little bit awkward to watch. But you just know that one of them, or two of them, or several of them, will at some point in the apprentice process make some dreadful mistake. They will make a decision that nobody else agreed with or they'll rub somebody up the wrong way or they'll find out that they've lied on their CV or something like that. And their whole kind of empire that they've built around themselves, all this self-promotion, bigging themselves up, will come crashing down to the floor as Alan Sugar points his finger and says, you're fired. And uh, it's always a wonderful moment to see that happen, uh, especially when they come out with these dreadful things that they come out with. It's also a little bit cringe, as I said, but there we go. I want us this evening, we're going to look at a story of shameless self-promotion on behalf of two of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, James and John. So if you've got a Bible with you, do turn to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to begin reading at verse 35. There were some Bibles at the back if you want to uh, go and grab one and follow along. So this is what it says. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. 
Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this this passage. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this evening through it. In Jesus' name, amen. I love the fact that for all of the church's faults, the story of the church is punctuated with some amazing stories of sacrifice, service, and self-denial. For example, in the year, well, not in the year, in the, in the third century, there was a terrible plague that afflicted the vast majority of the Roman Empire. Thousands and thousands of people died as a result of this plague. Records suggest that in Rome alone, at the height of the plague, around 5,000 people were dying per day. It was a dreadful, dreadful plague that afflicted the empire. And in all of the major cities of the Roman Empire, it was the same kind of story. And in the city of Alexandria, something quite incredible happened. It was a big city, it's in Egypt. People were dying of plague. It was getting worse and worse and worse. If you showed any signs of having the plague, you would be cast out of your family, out into the streets, you would be left to die. People were terrified of catching the disease. Dead bodies were building up in the streets because nobody was prepared to care for the sick or bury the dead. At the same time, the city was persecuting Christians. Christians were being made sport of in the arena. They were being executed in all kinds of horrific ways, killed by wild animals and by gladiators, all kinds of stuff like that. It was a terrible, terrible time to be a Christian. The plague got so bad that people just began to flee from the city. They just left the city behind and fled out into the open country, leaving behind them the dying and piles of bodies. The Christians those who were being persecuted by the authorities of the city made a decision. They decided to stay in the city. They decided that they would stay, that they would care for the sick, they would nurse the dying, they would bury the dead. And as a result of that decision, many, many Christians died of the plague in Alexandria but they stayed. They gave of themselves in a hugely sacrificial way that cost them their lives. It was amazing last night 
to hear the story of this church. It may not be as dramatic as the Christians in Alexandria in the third century, but it was amazing to hear a story of Christians in this community giving themselves, giving of their resources, giving of their time, giving of their lives to share the good news with this community here in Northfields and in Ealing. It was amazing and a privilege to hear that. The history of the church, for all of its faults, is punctuated by amazing stories of service and sacrifice and self-denial. But in this story, two of Jesus' closest friends, James and John, seem to have just lost the plot. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is leading a fairly reluctant group of people towards Jerusalem. In the preceding verses, he says this, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will will hand him over to the Gentiles, meaning the Romans, i.e. indicating how Jesus was going to die. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That's the context. Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem, walking towards his own crucifixion. And James and John, two of his closest friends, come up to him in this shameless moment of self-promotion, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, if anybody ever says that to you, you know that you have to be very cautious about how you respond. So Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. It's like James and John, for a brief moment, have just completely lost the plot. Following Jesus, becoming a disciple of Jesus, isn't some kind of quick fix towards personal gain and promotion. Becoming a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that you're automatically going to live in a five-bedroomed house, drive a Mercedes and have perfect teeth. It doesn't mean that. James and John seem to think, we'll follow you and we'll get the places of honor when you come into your kingdom. We'll be able to sit at your right and your left. This is about, about self promotion. This is about us having those places of honor with you, Jesus. But when Jesus spoke about discipleship, when he spoke about following him, he frequently used images of sacrifice, of service, and of self-denial. Even the parables that Jesus told about rewards for following him, if you think about this parable of the treasure buried in, hidden in the field or, or the pearl of great price, i.e. the great reward for following Jesus, well, even those parables contain some notion of, of sacrifice and self-denial because the people in the parables had to sell everything that they had in order to obtain the treasure or the pearl. Of course, there's incredible gain in following Jesus Of course there is. We obtain, as our relationship deepens and as we come to know him more, we become aware of great joy and hope and love and peace. We know that our eternal destination is secure in his hands, something of of much greater worth than any kind of position of power or earthly treasure. But actually we discover those things on the path of discipleship. 
as we follow after Jesus, as we carry our cross. See, James and John had been there at the transfiguration. They'd seen Jesus in his glory. They were, they were going to the capital city. Jesus was going to bring his kingdom. They were going to be there. We'll have the places of honor, they thought. And yet they didn't seem to appreciate, despite Jesus having told them so many times, they didn't seem to appreciate the fact that for Jesus to get to that place, it meant going through the betrayal of Gethsemane, the agony of Good Friday in which Jesus was glorified, the silence and the bewilderment of Easter Saturday, and then the victory, then the joy, then the hope of Easter Sunday. James and John didn't seem to realize the path that Jesus had to walk in order to come to that place of glory. Now we may look at James and John and we may think, I can't believe they'd come up with such a ridiculous question at such an insensitive time. How dare they ask Jesus something like that? But then we see that the 10, the remaining 10, are in some ways no better. They don't have the audacity of James and John to actually go up to Jesus and ask for something like that. They don't have the audacity of the apprentice candidates bigging themselves up. But actually, when they find out that James and John have asked for the places of honor, it says that they were indignant because surely they themselves would like to be considered for the places of honor. There's something in each one of us maybe that aspires for that place of honor to be recognized, to be promoted, to be thought highly of. A few years ago, I, I, um, I had the, the pleasure of, um, well, for, I led it for nine years. I led Boulder Gang, which was a uh, new wine chill. <laughs> I'm not going to do the rumble. But uh, no. <laughs> but I, I used to lead this children's group at New Wine, which was brilliant for nine years. And as part of leading that children's group, uh, I had the, um, the privilege of being invited to the leaders' prayer meeting on the New Wine site. The leaders' prayer meeting in the leaders' lounge. Brilliant. Brilliant, I thought. This is it. I've made it. And um, it was eight o'clock in the morning. One day, I remember, this was a lo- quite a long time ago. I remember walking towards the leaders' prayer meeting. And as I walked, I found that I was following a guy called David Pitchers. He was about 20 f- feet in front of me. David Pitchers, for those of you who don't know, was a bishop. He was a bishop in Chile. He um, used to be a vicar in Chorley Wood. And he basically started the New Wine Conference. He started the, the kind of New Wine movement that's now gone into many, many countries and blessed thousands and thousands of people. And I guess when I followed him, he was, uh, he was an, well, I don't know how old he was. He was probably in his 70s, I don't know. But he was an old man. And as I followed him early, early, early in the morning, there was nobody around. <clears throat> Every time he walked past a piece of litter, this elderly gentleman with a nice hat and a copy of the Telegraph under his arm bent down slowly because it looked like it was painful for him to do it. He bent down and he picked it up. And then he'd walk past another piece of litter and he'd bend down and he'd pick it up. And another piece of litter, he'd bend down and he'd pick it up. 
By the time he got to the leader's lounge where this prayer meeting was, his hands were full of litter. And this wasn't litter, this wasn't nice litter. It wasn't like a notice sheet that someone had left behind. This was like, this was the litter of the festival. It was greasy chip wrappers covered in mayonnaise and ketchup and old sort of half-eaten burgers and stuff like that. That's what he was picking up. And as I walked along, <laughs> I, actually, I actually started to cry. I was so moved by what I saw. I thought, this is the person, this is the person on the whole of this site that most deserves the place of honour. If anybody deserves the place of honour, it's this man. And yet silently, at a time when everybody else was asleep, apart from those few, the few of us going to this meeting, he was walking along the New Wine site, picking up the dirty chip wrappers that people that were coming to his conference had just left lying on the floor the night before. I thought, wow. That's why, that's why God could trust him with something like new wine. Because for all of his gifting in his heart, he's a servant. For all of his gifting in his heart, he's a servant. That even though it hurts his back to bend and pick up the chip wrapper, he'd still do it when nobody was looking. I am... Um, one of my favourite books at the moment, I just I dip into it every now and again, is a book written by a guy called Thomas Akempis. It's called The Imitation of Christ. Some of you may have read it. It was written hundreds of years ago. It was a monk. I was staggered when I read the book by how frequently he says this. Aim at being unknown and thought of no account. Aim at being unknown and thought of no account. That's what he sets up as something of a kind of, this is something to aim for in your life. I was staggered by that. Wow, what a challenging thing to read. But you know what I love? I love the kind of kingdom of God irony of that. Because hundreds of years later, we're still reading Thomas Akempis' book, on how to become Christ-like. It's considered one of, the, one of the, 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 the best Christian devotional texts ever written. Isn't there a wonderful kind of godly irony about that? That he writes so frequently, aim, I can't find it, aim at being unknown and thought of no account, and yet hundreds of years later, people are still picking up Thomas Akempis' book and saying this is a fantastic book about becoming Christ-like. Wow. There was David Pitchers, silently walking through the new wine site, picking up the litter of the night before. So Jesus calls his friends together, his disciples. He says this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. I love that because Jesus redefines lordship. Jesus redefines Lord. Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He is the King of the universe. He reigns supreme. And at the same time, 
He is the Lord who became a servant. He is the Lord who became a servant, gave his life in order to redeem the creation that he so loved. Instead, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just to finish, let me give two reasons um, why I want to, well, two two reasons I think why it's great to adopt a stance of servanthood. The first is because to serve is to follow, is to walk in the footsteps of Christ. To be a servant is to walk closely in the footsteps of Christ. Nobody served like Christ served. Nobody has ever served like Jesus served. This is what Paul writes about him. You're in, in Philippians chapter two. It was spoken about uh, this morning, actually. Did you have this, this as a reading? Yeah, Mark had this as a reading when he, he came to this church. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it goes on, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. To serve is to walk closely in the footsteps of our Saviour. Nobody serves like Jesus serves. The King of Kings gives up his throne, takes on human flesh, lives amongst us as a servant, and gives his life to redeem each one of us. What other king leaves his throne to do something like that? To serve is to walk in the footsteps of Christ. A second reason is that when we serve, we're not just serving the one we're serving, we serve Jesus. When we serve, we're not just serving the one we're serving, i.e. the person, we are serving Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 25, it says, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. When we serve, we serve Jesus. When you paint a house on Saturday, when you clear someone's garden or whatever it is you're going to do as part of the noise if you're doing it, you serve for Jesus, but you also serve to Jesus. It's as if you're painting his house, it's as if you're clearing his garden. Whatever you do for the least, you do for me. When you bake a cake for your neighbor who needs to be encouraged, 
you bake it for Jesus, but you also bake it to Jesus. When I was um, a student, I'll just finish with this. When I was a student, I um, occasionally helped out with um, the soup run in our, I was a a student in Canterbury. And I remember being there um, with a group of homeless guys. Uh, We used to meet them under the bus shelter. I remember a guy there, and um, he had terrible, terribly infected eyes. His eyes were really, really red. And um, he, he was obviously, well, he was obviously very ill. He, was, he just shook the whole time. And he had these eye drops, like, that the doctor had prescribed for his eyes, obviously. And um, he said to me, he came up to me and just said, would you help me put these drops in? I can't, because I can't do it. I shake too much. So um, I remember him kneeling in front of me and um, just looking up and with his eyes like wide open and I, as I put these drops in. I just remember looking at his face and I just remember thinking, I was thinking about this verse at the time and I was just thinking like, it's almost like as if I'm looking into the eyes of Jesus doing this. And that wasn't, I'm not in any way saying, it was just, I just felt so provoked by it. What you do for the least you do for me that somehow in this homeless person was Jesus and as I just did this tiny little thing it was like it was as if almost like I was putting the ointment into Jesus' eyes himself what you do for the least you do to me so my encouragement to you is let's be a church Let's continue to be a church because we've already heard the story of how this church has been a wonderful service to this community. Let's continue to be a people who love to serve because we love our neighbor and because we love the king who became a servant. Shall we, um, let's stand together and we'll pray.